I love coming to church when people are like really excited. It's really cool. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're excited. I hope that your energy, I get to feed off your energy because I am slightly sleep deprived. And um, yeah, we'll get there. If I fall asleep, just say, wake up, Jeff, and I'll, and I'll get there. Uh, but this week, uh, like, I just love that our church loves the community so much. You know, we really love hearing about what's happening at Fusion. Um, this week we had, I think, what was it, six of us? Seven of us. Six. I don't know. Somewhere around six to seven. If I forget anyone, I do apologize. But we were down uh, in uh, the southwest with red frogs and levers. Uh, your people did so well, church. Uh, they just served so wholeheartedly, uh, loved people so well. You know, if I got a dollar for every time we were told, red frogs, you're volunteers, you should be paid for this. I would literally be a millionaire. Like literally everywhere. It's like, you should be paid for this. Like, I know, and I'm here, I'm looking after you. But anyway, it was great. But you know, overall this year to date, we have done a combined total of 1,424 community engagement hours. 1,424. And there's still opportunities for the rest of the year. There's a, a few more things that are coming up. And that just goes to show that when we come together and when we serve the community, we can really make a difference. We've got a new man in the town of Vic Park, and we're going to meet her maybe in January or February at some point when we get ourselves organized after Christmas. And I'm going to tell her this, these kind of stats. You've got a church in your community that is actually active, that is actually doing something. And, and we want us to be active. This is a part of us being able to give out of who we are, uh, out of our resources. And our greatest resource is people, is people with a heart to serve. And I'm so glad that I get to be a part of this. And it's amazing. But I do want to get into today's message. And um, if you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read a big chunk of scripture because I think it is so important this morning. If you've got Romans 8 on you, say got it. If you're looking at the screen, say got it. Okay, so we've got a few people that have actually worked out how this thing works. This is great. All right, Romans 8, chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, sorry, Romans 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now a really quick note about that, that is basically a summary of the Gospel that we are sinners, that we are condemned, that death is our portion, but Christ came in the form of a man that he would be able to live a sinless life and be our substitute in order that we can have life. That's why, that's why we don't have any condemnation. That's why we get together. That's why we worship God because of what he has done. But more than just salvation, there is so much more that we get to live for. And Paul continues and he says this, he writes this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds 
minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living, living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also... Sorry, fan will give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This morning, I want to talk to you about adoption. And if you saw our socials, I'm going to talk to you about one thing that I've learned in this last year in a bit as Beck and I have been on adoption journey. Just to give you a quick update because lots of people are going to ask us this. No, we do not have a child yet. No, we will not get a child tomorrow. No, we will not get a child next week. The earliest we're looking at is early 2021. So yeah, we'll just leave it at that. It's a long journey. But we have been accepted. We have been approved and we are halfway in the journey. Thank you. It is, it is a point of celebration, but it's kind of just one of those things where you celebrate getting through halfway. It's like, yay. And it's like, yep, yeah, here we are. We're waiting. Anyway, so that is the logistical part of our journey. But we have been on a much longer journey, uh, especially in our hearts. And, you know, when we, before we got married, Beck and I did talk about adoption as a potential um, way that we would grow the family. And, and we had spoken about that before getting married. It was something that was precious to us. It was something that, was, that resounded with both of us. And for me in particular, adoption was really important because of how it had changed my life. Uh, not because I'm adopted. I grew up in a lovely, loving um, biological family. And, um, but adoption for me made sense when I was in my early 20s. You see, I, I had grown up in a Christian family, and I had known and I've been told that Jesus loves me. We sang those songs, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the, oh my gosh, did no one go to Sunday school when they were growing up? Are you guys just all too full of pancakes and you're worried that if you sing, it will, oh, uh, let's not go there. I've been seeing too much of that this week. Um, but we all know the Bible tells me that Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me that Jesus loves me. But I grappled with that concept that Jesus loved me. And in fact, when I look back, I can see how even though I knew that Jesus loved me, the way that I treated God was completely transactional. What do I mean by that? I mean that I thought that, my, that how much God loved me was in proportion to how much I served Him. I had a transactional relationship with God 
because I thought that I needed to earn his acceptance. Because I thought that I needed to work in order to be part of his family. And I was working myself to that point. I mean, even in my early 20s, I was already thinking I wanted to be a pastor. I was volunteering at church. I was paid uh, part-time by church. I was working my little butt off because I thought that that was what I wanted to do. But I also hugely, a huge part of me believed that that's how God was going to love me. And it was in my early 20s when things were going wrong and I actually thought that God hated me. And I was really disillusioned because I thought that there was not many people that I knew that was working harder for God, but yet I felt that God still didn't love me. It was really confusing for young Nate because it didn't make sense. And for many of us, we go through our lives and we do all these good things, you know, and then suddenly something happens and we go, if God is so good, then why did that happen? I've tried my best. I mean, there's something about doing something stupid and getting the consequences and we go, we deserve that. But when you don't deserve this outcome and it still happens, it makes you think, who's in charge here? This doesn't make sense because I poured my heart, my life, my blood, my sweat, my tears into building your kingdom, but yet you are still not really on my side. I, I thought I was abandoned. I thought that God didn't really like me. I, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had set myself on this track of becoming a pastor. And, and it was in that moment that I started to, for the first time in my life, hear about the doctrine of adoption. See, a doctrine is basically a collection of teaching around a certain topic in the Bible. And, and you know, the word adoption only appears four times in the New Testament. Only four times. And all four times it was written by Paul the Apostle. It's, uh, it appears in um, Romans a couple of times, and I think it's Ephesians once, and maybe Galatians another time. Only four times. But yet it is, when I started to look into it, it blew my mind. Because it gave me a picture. And that's what doctrine does. It gives you a handle. It gives you a picture. It gives you a deeper understanding on how God works. And when I started to explore this understanding, this, this perspective of God's relationship with me through the lens of adoption, it blew my mind. Why? Because it told me that God chose me. It told me that God desires me. It told me that God is waiting for me. It told me that God was willing to do whatever it takes for me to be part of his family. It, it started to speak to me of my worth. It started to speak to me of my position and my place and my belonging to something so much bigger than myself. I started to see that if I was working for adoption, then it's not really adoption, it's really slavery. But if there is nothing that I can do to earn this adoption, then I truly am a child of God who is loved by God. I did not have to earn this. In fact, I do not deserve this, but still God chooses me. And what blew my mind, and you can see this in the first few verses in Romans chapter 8, when it talks about Jesus being the substitute for us, think about it through the lens of adoption. The price that God was willing to pay for you to be part of his family, to adopt you, was his own life. When you think about the worth and the value of something is attached to the price that you're willing to pay for it. And if my life was purchased at the price of Jesus' life, what does that make my value? My value 
is Jesus' life. When we talk about identity, when we talk about how we find ourselves, adoption is one of the clearest doctrines in the Bible that should shake us to the core of our being. Because if Jesus was willing to die that I could be part of the family, that is my price. That is my price tag. I should walk around with the confidence that God was willing to pay the price that I could be part of the family. And on top of that, Romans chapter 8 goes on to say that we are now co-heirs with Christ. That is radical. You see, there is a Jewish mindset around adoption. We don't have time to talk about it today. But as I was researching adoption in the Bible, I started to also learn about a Roman um, form of adoption. And the Roman form of adoption is, I think, what Paul was specifically referring to in this whole idea of being an heir. You see, in Roman society, adoptions only took place in the upper echelons of society. It was a very class-based society. You were either at the top uh, and in, 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 in privileged ranks or you were nothing. And people would do anything to get into the privileged ranks. And what would often happen, or not often, in some very specific cases, adoption took place when a person of standing, a family of standing, did not have an heir. They did not have an heir, and they wanted to continue their line. And so what they would do is that they would adopt someone, bring that person in, so that this person would become the heir. When that person becomes part of that family, he it was normally a he in that, in that time. That person now was given the full status of that family. When we read that we are co-heirs with Christ, it is not just when God dies, because we know that God is not going to die. It's not that we get an inheritance sometime later. It is about the fact that when we walk around, we have been conferred with the status of his family. That we were brought from a place where there was no status, there was no position there was no rights, there were no benefits of being who we are. But God places His name on us so that we can walk around and say, now I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. That is my status. That is my position. And we don't understand that because Australia is a flat society. We hate anyone that stands out. You know, if you want to be a politician, I will find everything that I hate about you. It's just the way that we work. But in Roman society, when you were given a name, you were given a name. You could walk different. You could stand different. And so adoption changed my perspective of who I was. Because suddenly I saw that God accepts me. He pursues me. He brings me in. He gives to me. He provides to me. And I had nothing to give to Him. Everything that I was trying to do to earn that position, I started to see no, 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 I do it because I already have been adopted. I'm simply living out who I am. However, in this last year, before I go there, there's a quote by a theologian named J.I. Packer, and he, he writes this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. How amazing that when we worship God, it's not from afar, but it's right there. Father, I'm worshiping Father. I pray that as you hear these words that 
If you are feeling as though your relationship and you're evaluating your relationship with God and it's in a transactional manner, stop it. That's not Christianity. That's every other religion on the face of the planet. Our relationship with God is first and foremost as Father. Over the last year and a bit, as we have started our adoption journey, it started off with me thinking, man, it would be so cool to be able to give that space for a literal child. And um, so Beck and I started the process, and we went through an educational process. And that's when I started to have to learn a different perspective of adoption. You see, the only understanding that I really had of adoption at that point was from the position of the adoptive parent. The adoptive parent is loving, the adoptive parent is giving, the adoptive parent is generous, the adoptive parent is kind, the adoptive parent is long-suffering. All those 1 Corinthians 13 type description of love, I, I could see that because that's God and that's amazing. But the thing that shifted for me was that I had never considered the position of the child before because I never had to. When I learned about adoption in the Bible, the doctrine of adoption, I learned about who God was and I understood it from my position from an intact family, from a position that I had been loved and accepted and had this security right from a young age. But as I went into this educational uh, process, what I started to understand is that as much as adoption is about love, adoption is also about loss. For the child, adoption is not about love. For the child, adoption is about loss, at least for the first part of this journey. What do I mean? From the very beginning, this child has to mourn and grieve the loss of their connection with their birth mom, who at the very least had spent nine months in literal physical contact with her. Think about that. For nine whole months, this little child is hearing the voice of his or her mom on a daily basis. She or he hears the heartbeat of mom. Hears the breathing of mom. Hears the world through the lens of mom and is encoded into their emotions. That is something that is lost. They lose their sense of security and permanence because maybe what was supposed to be a permanent space for them to grow up is no longer permanent. It has become a part of the past. It, it, they, they have to be brought into maybe a foster family or maybe into uh, uh, um, an orphanage or maybe even directly into another family, but still there was a loss of something that was supposed to be permanent. There could be a loss of heritage as they move from country. There's a loss of choice because as a child, you don't really get a choice. But in a normal intact family, you would get some choices. But for this child, there isn't choice. They're being told by the system, this is where you are going, full stop. You get your rights taken away from you. Adoption is about loss, people. Adoption is about loss. It's about a loss of a whole lifestyle. It's about a loss of everything that used to be. And when you lose that much, it affects you. It, 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 it rewires you. It, it, it completely changes the way that you view the world. And that is something that completely changed my perspective about adoption. I had to ask myself, am I ready for this? Because being an adoptive parent is not just about sharing love in a Hollywood, Disney 
kind of way, it, it really is about dealing with something so much deeper. And it's difficult. It's amazing that in our church family, uh, we've got to know a few people who are adoptees, and you guys are the real heroes. And I, I went into adoption honestly thinking that I was a hero. But I walked out of those educational seminars thinking, man, for you to have gone through what you've had to go through and still to be here to this day and trying to live, that is amazing. You're the heroes. And that perspective began to kind of sit with me as I started to think about the whole doctrine of adoption. And I started to see something a little bit strange because as we were reading about this adoption stuff in Romans chapter 8, it says that if you've got the Spirit, you are now a child of God, right? But then in verse 23, it's going to come up on the screens, it says that we are eagerly awaiting adoption. Remember this, right? We read this earlier in the chapter. It says that we have been adopted. But then in verse 23, it says we eagerly wait our adoption. So are we adopted or are we waiting adoption? Which one is it? And that's part of the problem with the way that we see a lot of stuff in the Bible because we see it through the lens of our understanding of time. And when we see a promise of God, we think about it in terms of now. But a lot of things, a lot of concepts in the Bible has this dual concept of now and also not yet. And we see this time and time again. When we think about salvation, it says that today salvation is yours, but then in another part of the Bible, it would say that you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Have you received it or are you still working it out? Both. We read about how uh, Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he says the kingdom of heaven is coming. Is it here or is it coming? We don't get that because of the way that time works for us. And is it is a yes? We think that wholeness, when we become, uh, Jesus binds the brokenhearted. But then... In a moment, we, in another part of the Bible, we read about how it says that he who is at work in us will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. So is his work complete or is it still being completed? Both. And when it comes to adoption, it's the same. We have been adopted, but we are also being adopted. And that started to make me think about this concept of what does it mean to be adopted, but also to be being adopted? And I started to see Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 7 as well through that lens. You see, Paul talks about how there is a flesh and there is a spirit, right? And he says that the mind set on the flesh is one that is set on destruction, whereas the mind set on the spirit is going to bring life and peace. Who wants a bit of life and peace? Yeah, okay, five people. You're probably in the wrong church, guys. There's a Satanist church. Just, no, I'm joking. Please don't leave. But we have a mind that is set on the flesh and a mind that is set on the spirit. And I remember when I was growing up, whenever we talked about the flesh, in particular when you're talking to young adolescent boys, people always teach about the flesh as though it's lust. Or you're being so fleshly. What does that mean? That you saw a hot girl. That's what it means. Like, stop looking at the hot girl. That's what they always meant when they were talking to me about the flesh. And so when I read this part of the Bible and it says the mindset of flesh is death and destruction, I thought that it only meant lust. 
But as I continued to think about this through the lens of adoption, I started to think about it in a very different way. You see, the flesh isn't so much sin, because it's a mind that is set on the flesh that sins. Make sense? It's the mind that is set on flesh that acts out into sin. But the mind that is set on the flesh, what does that actually mean? See, for every single human being, research has shown that you write a manual for life over the first eight years of your life. By the age eight, you have more or less written a manual on how the world works. I've got a little picture up there, Anthony, just a little notebook. And I actually apologize because I wrote that date in the morning and um, that's 10. Uh, it should be 1994. I couldn't do my math in the morning. But just take it as really young Nate. I was born in 1986. And so by the age of, by the year 1994, I had actually completed, or more or less completed, what I thought was a manual for life. Every single human being does that. If I was to observe every single moment of your life to the age of eight, I would probably be able to quite accurately predict every decision that you're going to make. That's what research is showing us. Because of the things that have happened to you, you are going to make decisions based on those equations that you've written into your manual. And I started to think about that. Eight years old. My nephew is eight years old. My beautiful, robust, energetic nephew has already written a manual for life. He's going to make decisions based on the experiences he's accumulated up to this age so far. It's scary, isn't it? Because science also tells us that our brain continues to develop till we are 25. So what business has an eight-year-old got writing a manual for life? And where is this manual being written? Let me tell you where it's written, because the mind is still developing, most of it is encoded into a person's emotions. Research has shown this, that the trauma a young child faces, even a loss when they are six months old and being removed from their birth mom, the trauma of that loss, they might not understand cognitively, but they understand emotionally. It is written into their emotions, and it acts out in the way that they make choices and how their life works. See, that shattered my thinking because I started to see that when God was talking about a mindset on the flesh, He wasn't talking so much about sin. He was talking about how we think the world works. And let's face it, all of us have faced certain traumas and certain difficulties in our life. A lot of it we don't even know that we've faced. A lot of the decisions that we are making, we don't even know where it's coming from. Where is coming from that? And let me tell you that for most people, how the world works is a very scary world. It's a world filled with letdowns and disappointments. It's a world filled with possible abandonment and pain and loss. We write it into our manuals because we want to protect ourselves from future pain. But here we have this amazing picture of God adopting us into his family. And when he does so, he gives us a new manual. 
And in this new manual, we find life and peace. But in order to live this manual out, we have to let go of that manual. And let me tell you, it's scary because when you have been living that way for year after year, we have worked out how the world works. It has kept us safe. It has kept us secure. It has kept us going in our lives. And to say you need to leave that behind in order to take this on. We don't know how that's going to work. We don't know what the outcome's going to be because we've never lived according to this manual. The mindset on the flesh brings death and destruction, but for the person who has written that manual, it has brought security. I have read story after story. I've spoken to person or on YouTube and see these stories. The countless stories of little children that are being brought into this family, a permanent home with adoptive parents that absolutely love them giving them a secure household with plenty to eat, plenty of love, and the first thing that they do is to hoard food. I heard a story a few weeks ago about this little boy who goes into this safe, beautiful family, and the first thing he does, they, were, they, they had cooked 24 sausages, and the first thing he does is to grab 10 of them, put it on his plate, and he was guarding them with a fork and a knife. Why was he doing that? Because he didn't know what this family was about. He didn't know whether this family was going to feed him again. Maybe this was the last time that he was going to eat, and so he was going to eat himself happy. What about the little child that packs her bag after the end of the night, even though she's in a permanent house, but she doesn't know that. She doesn't know if tomorrow someone's going to take her away and move her into a different place. So she doesn't want to miss out on any of her toys, any of her clothing, any of the things that she remembers. So before she goes to bed, she packs her back. She is now part of a new family, but she still doesn't know that. She has been adopted, but she still doesn't realize that. And God started to show me that for each and every single one of us, we have been adopted, but we are also being adopted. We have been adopted legally according to God's systems and according to all of the spiritual laws that God has put out there. But on the inside of us, we are still struggling with our adoption. And so inside of each and every single one of us, we have a manual that tells us how the world works. And, he, and here we have the Spirit trying to teach us a new way of living. And so I've got this other picture. So the flesh and the spirit in, in this circle that's been cut in half. And so when Paul, when you read Romans chapter 7 and 8, think about this picture. The mind that is set on the flesh and the mind that is set on the spirit. See, what happens is that adoption is actually a picture of discipleship. Adoption is a picture of discipleship in the sense that we already belong to God but we are learning what it means to belong to God. And while we are in this process, there is a part of us that is fixed on the old way of living. What does the Bible teach us time and time again? Forgetting what is behind, I'm straining forward for the price, the upward price, the calling of Jesus Christ. Why does it say that? Because all of us have got things, have got manuals, have got, equations on how the world works and we got to learn how to listen to this discipleship the goal of discipleship is that the flesh becomes small and the spirit becomes large i got another picture of that if we can find that 
the other way around. That is when we are not discipled. That's when we are discipled. We need to learn how to tune into what God is saying. You know how that's going to work? When you trust that God has your good at heart. No adoptive child believes that they're truly safe until they know and trust the character of their parents. Do you trust God? No, no, seriously, ask yourself this. Because I know that I didn't. In my early 20s, I didn't think that God liked me. His voice wasn't very important to me because I didn't think that I could trust him. My voice was more important, and I thought I learned how the world works. But those were equations made by an eight-year-old child who did not really understand how the world works, but it was my best attempt. My journey of discipleship has been painful because I've had to let go of things that I thought I understood in order to take hold of things that I don't always understand. But God promises me that setting my mind on this brings me life and peace. Why do you rock up to church every week? Or why should you rock up to church every single week? It's because it's a place for you to actually hear what the Spirit is saying. Or you can continue working out your life based on your eight years of experience, on all your fears and all your dysfunctions. How many of you know that eight-year-olds are dysfunctional? One moment, they love you. The next moment, they're screaming at you because you told them that they need a nap. Every parent says, yep, you've been through that. But they still do that. Until one day they realize naps are good. I mean, I'm in that space right now. Naps are the best thing in the world. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have a nap. I need that nap today. Why do you read your Bible? And why does the Bible hurt so much? <laughs> because the Bible tells us stuff about how God has designed us, but we look at our lives and our experiences and we go, nah, that wasn't me. You don't know what it was like for me. You don't know what it was like to be in that situation. You don't know what it was like to be abused. You don't know what it was like to be abandoned. You don't know what it was like to hear that I was a disappointment at the age of six when I couldn't do my equations well enough. You don't know what it was like. For you to say that God loves me, sure, God loves you maybe, but I don't think that he loves me because I haven't got there yet. But the Bible is the standard of truth if we are truly to live as adopted children of God. What has adoption taught me? Adoption has taught me that it is a process. And adoption has also taught me what our father is like. You see, in the midst of all the pain and the trauma and the grief that our child is going to go through, more than likely our child at some point is going to scream at my face, you're not even my real dad. I'm going to hear that. And it's going to hurt like hell. And it's going to be like, I, I, I poured out my life. 
I've given off so much resource for you and this is what you're going to say to me. But I know that it's not coming from a place of proper thought, but it's coming from a place of pain. So what am I going to do as an adoptive parent? I'm going to stay. I'm going to still be available to love. I'm still going to be available to open myself up. I'm still going to be available to care. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to overlook everything that my child does because even the Bible itself teaches us right from wrong and truth from lies, and, and, and we have to do that. But it comes from a position of openness and love. And the more I realize that that's what God does for us, the more I realize that I'm really not going to chase God away. That He's never left me or forsaken me. I've left him and I've forsaken him, but he's always been there. He's the safest place I know. He's the truest truth I know. He's the sweetest freedom that I have found. And he's the fullest life I've experienced. And that is what he offers to each and every single one of us. We can get the band up this morning. I want to talk to every person here who hasn't got a relationship with God right. What I mean by right, I mean in a place where you understand that God loves you so deeply, that He's been pursuing you so relentlessly, and that He's calling you home. But you're in a place where you've been holding Him at arm's length. If that's you this morning, I want to lead you into a prayer to open yourself up and to invite Jesus into your life. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, please repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I open up my heart to you. I make myself available to you. I want to come home. I want to experience your life. And I want to experience your peace. So please bring me in. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.